Today, as we, we continue through Mark, we come to the cross. And we've been leading up to this for several weeks as we've been talking through the, the week before and we've been talking through Passion Week. And we come to the cross today and, and my concern as we come to the cross is always the familiarity of the story. Because sometimes stories become so familiar that we lose the impact, don't they? I mean, we can think through kids' stories and my, my kids are... are they, they just like the same stories over and over and over. And, and it becomes something that we know and we can recite, but we don't know and we don't put into our lives. It's easy when we, we do this to start even changing things around and forget what Jesus was accomplishing and forget God's plan. And, and we don't want to do that. And we do this with movies sometimes, don't we? There's all kinds of famous movie quotes because we're so familiar with them that aren't actually in movies. Okay, one from Casablanca. Play it again, Sam. Not in the movie. But everyone quotes it. Star Wars, Empire Strikes Back. Luke, I am your father. It's my ringtone when my dad calls me. Uh, it's great. <laughs> he never says Luke. He never said, and we're, we're so familiar with these things and we've recited them so much that they've taken on a life of their own and we've changed them. Today I want to come back to the cross and come back not to what we think it says, but just look at the Gospel of Mark as to what Mark says. Now there's a whole lot of details that Mark leaves out that, that he doesn't even cover because he has this laser focus of what he's trying to say about the cross what he's trying to say about how the cross reflects the kingship of Jesus Christ and what kind of king, what kind of Messiah he was. So we're going to take that same laser focus and just look at the Gospel of Mark this morning. And I pray as we do that the cross will horrify us again, that the cross will impact us again, will challenge us again to live lives set apart and holy for our Lord. Turn with me to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15, and we'll be starting in verse 21 today. Once you get your finger there, I'm going to have you turn to another passage. So Mark 15, hold your finger there and just turn back a few pages to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11, starting at verse 7. Because we need to remember that just five days prior to the, to the cross, on that Sunday before, on that Palm Sunday, the, the crowd was saying something very different than the crowd was saying on that day because of the religious leaders. But in Mark chapter 11, verse 7, And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and He sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest! So on Sunday, five days earlier, on Palm Sunday that we celebrate today, Jesus is brought into Jerusalem as a king. As a king. And throughout the, between Mark chapter 11 and Mark 15, where we're at now in the cross, Mark is continually using words like King of the Jews and Messiah and contrasting that with what people thought that should mean and what God said it meant. 
And so that's the backdrop, Mark chapter 11, that we come to our passage this morning, Mark chapter 15. Five days later. And as we look and see what kind of king Jesus was, because in this passage it's revealed, it's revealed as clear as can be, when we say, ask the question, what kind of king was Jesus? There's three words that I want you to remember this morning. Sacrifice, substitute, and savior. Sacrifice, substitute, and savior. First point. What kind of king was Jesus? What did he do? He was a king that gave an unfathomable sacrifice. An unfathomable sacrifice. Jesus, the servant king, is willing to sacrifice himself for his subjects. Jesus, the servant king, is willing to sacrifice himself for his subjects. Now, what's wrong with that picture? Is that what kings usually do? No, what's the normal order of things? The subjects or the servants sacrifice themselves for the king, right? When the the president is walking down and all of a sudden gunshots happen, you don't see the president diving in front of the Secret Service to protect them. The Secret Service are diving in front of the president to save his life. Well, The first aspect of Jesus' kingship that he says there is no. In his realm, the king is willing to sacrifice himself for the subjects. Let's read verses 21 through 32 together. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each would take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right hand, one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild in in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Probably with a lot more sneers than that. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save Himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with Him also reviled Him. And in a short paragraph, Mark describes the cross. And it's hard to read. And and Mark here is just going... This happened, and this happened, and this happened. In the the original language, he actually uses present tense verbs to try to draw us in. And it's not, and then this happened. He says, "And, and this is happening. And Jesus is on the cross, and Jesus is being reviled. And so he's using all present tense verbs here to draw us in to the action. It's his way of saying immediately without saying immediately. But Mark is drawing us in to see the sacrifice. The sacrifice that Jesus gave on the cross. There's a lot more details He could have gone into. A lot more things about the crucifixion He could have said. But He was writing to to Christians in Rome. They knew full well what it meant to be crucified. He didn't have to describe it in detail. 
they knew that to the Romans, crucifixion really had two purposes. Two purposes. The first was to punish the criminal. To punish in the worst way possible the convicted felon. And so they would do that by keeping him alive and in as much pain for as long as possible. Because the theory was, if you could keep him alive and experiencing excruciating pain, then you were punishing him. But the second purpose of crucifixion and why it was so horrendous was the Romans were determined to make it a deterrent. A deterrent to people. In fact, we know that during when the Romans were, were um, had Jerusalem surrounded during the siege of Jerusalem, as people would go out to sneak out for food, they would capture them and they would they would hang them on crosses all along where the the Jews could see them from their wall. And just to try to be a little creative, each person they would hang in different positions. Just but they ran out of crosses finally. And the whole point was do this where you could see, do this as horrifically as possible. Because then the next person won't want to defy us. Do you get a picture of what the Romans were like? This was their way of keeping people in line, of preserving public order. And in these verses, 21 through 32, we see the servant king's sacrifice. And the first part of it that we see in verses 21 through 23 is he accepted physical torture as far as man can endure. He accepted physical torture as far as man can endure. Pastor Andrew described last week what some of that torture entailed. It's hard to hear. Hard to hear, but we begin to see the depth of our servant Lord's sacrifice. Verse 21, And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Mark just states the facts, states them quickly. And Simon was probably a Jew that was coming from North Africa, either for the Passover or was now living in Jerusalem. And he's walking in from being out in the country as as the Romans are taking Jesus out. And at that point, Jesus cannot carry his crossbar any longer. See, the Romans, when they crucified someone, they had a law that the, the convicted person would have to carry the crossbar. And they'd have to carry it through the roads. And what they did is they developed a path to Golgotha, to the place of the crucifixion, that was as long as possible, that would let as many people as possible see what was happening. Remember one of the purposes of crucifixion? Horrify the people into obedience. And so they were taking Jesus through these roads, and this crossbar is heavy. Now, what happened that we studied last week? He had just been whipped and scourged to an inch of his life. Blood had been lost. He had the crown of thorns. And he simply could not carry that beam any any longer. Jesus, as he came to the cross, was already at the end of what he could endure physically. So he falls down and can't carry this cross any further. And they bring Simon in. They enlist him as they had a right to do and said, you're carrying the cross. And he did. And he's recorded in in all the first three Gospels as doing this. Mark mentions his sons. 
Alexander and Rufus probably because his sons were well-known in the Roman church. This was probably a life-changing moment for Simon that brought his family to salvation. But in verse 22, they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. In the Latin, it's Calvarium, which is where we get the word Calvary. So when we say Calvary, we are referring to Golgotha. We are referring to the place of the crucifixion. We're not going to get into all kinds of conjecture about where it is, but it was probably some rocky outcropping that they could crucify people on, and it was definitely within sight of the major roads, because again, one of the purposes of crucifixion was to let as many people see as possible and to scare them into obedience. So they take him to a place where it's visible, where all will see, and they crucify him outside the city walls. Verse 23, And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. It's an interesting statement because those that were crucified would be in excruciating pain. And the word excruciating comes from out of the cross. It comes from the idea of crucifixion and how horrible that pain was. But some of the, the women of the area would try to obey Proverbs 31 where it says if someone is, is at death, give them strong drink. And so they would come with this drink mixed with myrrh. It's an anesthetic. It, it dulls your senses. It dulls the pain. And they would try to give that to those being crucified as a way to obey the Old Testament while they're crucifying our Lord. And so they come and they have this drugged wine And they offer it to him, and he wouldn't take it, the Bible says. But he did not take it. And that's an interesting statement because it comes back to the physical horror that he was experiencing. And in the midst of that, he chose, he chose to fully experience what was happening to him. Without being drugged, without taking shortcuts, because he came to be a sacrifice. A full sacrifice. Think about this. Sacrifices mean something only when they're sacrifices, right? If I I tell my wife later today, you know, I'm going to sacrifice for you. I'm going to sacrifice for you. We're going to watch the Dodger game. (laughs) You know what? I should earn points for that because I am really sacrificing for you. What will she do? She will laugh at me. Well, she maybe not laugh. Maybe, maybe she just, I don't know what she'd do. Now, if I say, I'm going to sacrifice for you this afternoon and we're going to watch Pride and Prejudice. <laughs> the whole thing. <laughs> the original. Is it six hours? And I'll stay awake. <laughs> Which one's the greater sacrifice? <laughs> okay, let's say it's an angel's game. <laughs> now, I know everyone's different, and some people like the Dodger games and want to watch that and don't want to watch Pride and Prejudice, but do you see where I'm going with it? A sacrifice is only a sacrifice if it's a sacrifice. And Jesus... in 
as he came, was showing just how deeply he loved us. What kind of king would sacrifice himself and voluntarily endure this kind of horror so that we could be saved? A king that was willing to sacrifice all because he loved us so completely. See, our suffering servant chose to be crucified for us. He chose not to take shortcuts. Mark here is is combining, he puts these together to show the, the physical point Jesus was at. He was at his end and he still didn't take shortcuts because he was committed to being the sacrifice for our sins. That should stir our hearts. That should move us in a response of love, in a response of obedience. But then we go on in verses 24 and 25. He not only endured great physical pain, but he endured great shame and humiliation. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. It was the third hour when they crucified him. And again, a whole number of things are condensed into one statement here and. And Mark is showing how this is a, a fulfillment of Psalm 22:18. They divided, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But what's happening here is, is two things to catch out of these verses. The first is he brings back up crucifixion. They crucified him. It starts. They crucified him. One of the most cruelest and degrading forms of punishment ever conceived, even in the eyes of the pagan world. Josephus said it is the most wretched of all ways of dying. Mark uses great restraint here. He doesn't get into all the details. But we know that the the criminal would be stripped and they would be nailed or tied to the crossbeam. That piece would then be lifted up by the soldiers onto the, the spike that was already in the ground, either in a T or they would tie it more like a traditional cross. And then the person would hang there in full sight of everyone, nearly naked or naked, in shame and embarrassment beyond compare. And sometimes it would take two or three days for them to die. And they could die from any number of things. They could die from loss of blood. They could die from asphyxiation. They could die from just exposure. But usually it was suffocation or shock. And as Jesus is hanging there, Mark records that he looks down and sees the soldiers trying to get a little extra bonus out of their day. Let's gamble for Jesus' clothes. Hey, we've heard the stories. We know a woman was was healed by touching this. Let's gamble for his clothes. And so he hangs there, completely exposed, in shame, while they barter barter for what he has. He endured great shame and humiliation. It's about nine in the morning now. The third hour. The beginning of six hours of shame and torture on the cross. And finally we get to the, the... Last set of verses, what he endured, he was mocked as a fool rather than worshipped as the servant Savior. He was mocked as a fool 
rather than worshipped as the servant Savior. And it's interesting because Mark just hits details like this, and then all of a sudden in 26 through 32, he stops. And when Mark stops and camps on something, we better listen because this is the point. And this goes into the next section that we'll look at today as well. Verse 26, And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And again, we know that they they put a sign, and we know the story, they put a sign above him and nailed it to the cross that said, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. But we have to understand where that's coming from again. That That's not necessarily a special thing for Jesus. Because one of the things they would do is as they paraded them through the longest route possible and they're carrying the crossbar, if the person was able, they would put that sign around their neck with the charges on it. If he wasn't able to, then a soldier would walk in front of the criminal with the sign. And so this sign represented the charges that Pilate was leveling against Jesus. It was the official charges. And it had already been walked through in front of Jesus through the the streets of Jerusalem. And they get to the cross and he nails it above Jesus. Because Pilate here, this is sort of Pilate's last sarcastic retort to the Jews. He's your king. Okay, we're crucifying him because of insurrection. Because he says he's the king of the Jews. And that would be against Herod. He's your king. Here he is. And we know that the religious leaders wanted him to change it. But it's a reminder that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the King. The King that's willing to take the bullet for us instead of the other way around. He was mocked as a fool rather than worshipped as servant Savior. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right, one on his left. The word for robbers there is often translated insurrectionist because just stealing something was not a capital offense. It had to be insurrection against authority. And these two were probably in league with Barabbas, probably convicted at the same time. Just something to think about. They didn't just throw this crucifixion together for Jesus. This was a planned crucifixion for these two robbers, and probably for Barabbas. Because you don't just throw a crucifixion like this together in three hours. And Jesus, because of Pilate, and what what an incredible picture of what we're going to see later in the text, Jesus, because of Pilate, an innocent man, took Barabbas' place. A guilty man. And Barabbas went free. And Jesus took the penalty that Barabbas was guilty of. Wow. And Mark's going to go there in the next section in depth. So just think about that. Hold that thought. But that's a picture of what's happening here. We read on. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Again, it's a reference to Psalm 22. And I encourage you to sometime this week, read through Psalm 22. As you prepare for Easter, read through Psalm 22. Because Mark is referencing that almost in every verse here. In Psalm 22, 7, All who see me mock me, and they make mouths at me, and they wag their heads. And we think, okay, wag their heads? Really? Really, is that so bad? But it it was a, a... a movement, a gesture of contempt for them. 
It was something that was offensive. We have some gestures that are offensive. I'm not going to do any of them. But that's the level of what they were doing. I, even at, in a small way, you know, someone cuts you off on the freeway, and, and or, or you cut someone else off, which I'm sure never happens. And, and you look back in your mirror, and they're going like this. Okay? You know what they're feeling. Not good things. But this is a gesture of contempt. And so Mark puts it in there because in these verses, he's showing us the mockery that Jesus is experiencing. And it's a mockery directed at his kingship. Just for fun, the word for derided in verse 29, and those who passed by derided him, is blasphemo. The same word of what Jesus was accused of. And Jesus is hanging on a a tree for blasphemy while the crowd is blaspheming God Almighty. That sends chills down my, my back. The irony of what's happening here. And they say in verse 30, save yourself, come down off the cross, be Superman, prove it. How can you say you're the Messiah? How can you save others if you can't even save yourself? And they say that in verse 31. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. And they're referencing to all the healings and all the things he went around doing and casting out of demon and he was saving people his whole ministry. And they get him on the cross and say, really, you're saving people? You can't even save yourself? That's ridiculous. And the irony, again, that is so rich in this passage is he was saving people on the cross. And if he comes down off the cross, he stops saving people. And they had a fundamental issue with their thinking because to them, the Messiah should first and foremost protect himself. It should be about self. And you see that in every verse. Save yourself. Come down from the cross. He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. And to them, they said a king should be self-centered, should only care about himself, and that's how we'll know he's king. What a sad thing to say. Because in reality, he was caring so much for others. And he proved his kingship by staying on that cross. Why wouldn't he come down? If he came down, he wouldn't have paid the penalty of death for sin that we see in Romans 6.23. If he would have come down, he wouldn't have been sinless because he would have disobeyed the Father and he would not be a sinless sacrifice for our sins. If he would have come down, he would have shown that he loved himself more than us and denied his love. No, he wasn't coming down. He was there to be the sacrifice. The sacrifice for his subjects. That's kingship. Verse 32, let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. 
We know from Luke that one of the ones crucified with him eventually changed his tune and was saved. But the first word that Christ reveals about what his kingship entails was sacrifice. Was sacrifice. The second word is substitute. Uh, Agonizing and loving substitution. The servant king gave his life in our place as the ransom. The servant king gave his life in our place as the ransom. Read with me verses 33 through 36. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So just so we know, the sixth hour in in Jewish reckoning was noon. And so at noon, in the middle of the day, the heat of the day, everything goes black. Until the ninth hour, about three in the afternoon. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani. Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders heard it. Hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it in a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. I want to go back to the beginning of that section because Mark's point and where he comes, this is the heart of the cross. Why was he briefly going over other details and why does he stop here? Because this is the message of the cross. First, it starts in 33. When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And we may think, okay, that's a nice miracle. Shows that Jesus was God. And, and, and we, we skip the details. But darkness in the Old Testament represented God's judgment. It represented God's judgment. It represented the coming day of the Lord. In Amos chapter 8, verse 9. Turn, turn over there. Amos chapter 8, 9. Verse 9. We're in a section here where the prophet Amos is talking about the coming day of the Lord. And in verse 9 he says, And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only sun and the end of it like a bitter day. And he's in a section here where he's dealing with the sins of Israel and saying, I will judge sin. And one of the components of that was darkness in the middle of the day. Exodus 10.21, the ninth plague, right before the angel of death comes, darkness for three days, representing God's judgment. And Mark is very intentional in mentioning this one and tying it with, with what Jesus says next. Because the question we ask is, why darkness? Why judgment? What is God judging? Who is God pouring His judgment out on? And we get the answer in verse 34. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in two verses, we get the heart of salvation, the means of salvation, the only way salvation can happen. Because we see when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
we see at that moment in time that Jesus takes on Himself. He takes on Himself and bears our sins and the guilt of our sins. But more than that, He bears the punishment of our sins. And that, that three hours of darkness, that was a time where Jesus was bearing our sins and God was pouring out His wrath on Jesus Christ. That's why the world was dark. That's why there was silence. Because that had never happened before. And we see the Trinity, the three in one, somehow separated. Not that Jesus was no longer God, but now God has, is pouring out His wrath on the Son because only the Son could take it. Because Jesus had done nothing to deserve being on that cross. Nothing for that wrath. And at that point of darkness, all of our sins were placed on Him. And He felt anguish from bearing our sins. He felt the guilt of our sins. And He stood there or hung there in our place while God dealt with sin. Because a righteous and a just God must deal with sin. He is loving and He is just and He is righteous. He doesn't pick one and say, today I'm going to be one. He is always all of those things. And you cannot have love without judgment on sin. Permissiveness is not love. And His holiness demands a response from sin. In Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And at that moment, Jesus said, the wages of sin is death, but I will take your sin on Myself and then I will bear the wages. I will take the punishment. A word that we use for that is propitiation. Where Jesus hung and took God's wrath and satisfied God's wrath. And the payment was completely paid for. For our sin. Paid in full. That's why darkness was over the face of the earth. Or in that area. See, hell came to Calvary that day because Jesus took our sin and he paid for it. And we see in his statement the agony of separation from God. I can't explain it, it's a mystery. But the depth of that agony goes beyond our comprehension. Again, Mark is quoting Psalm 22 here, where Jesus is, and he's referring to it. In Psalm 22, verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? And to really understand and be impacted by the cross, we need to be impacted by the depth of the substitution. That Jesus is in our place experiencing separation from God the Father. Now the thing about pouring out wrath and separation is when it's someone you hardly know, it doesn't make much of a difference. If someone on the street comes to me and just hits me in the face, okay, it hurts a little bit, but, but really? Okay, let's go on. But if Susie comes and says, you know what, I don't like you because of this and I'm not speaking to you again, that hurts deeper because of my relationship with her. 
Well, picture Jesus who has been in eternity as part of the Trinity. In perfect communion. In perfect fellowship. And for the first time in all eternity, He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And at that moment, He endured that to be our substitute. He said those words so we wouldn't have to. In Galatians 3, verse 13, we read, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. He became the curse for us. He took our place. Mark 10.45, key verse in the Gospel of Mark that, that really brackets the Passion Week. And we have Mark 10.45 and then we have now on the cross. But Mark 10.45 says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. To give His life as a ransom for many. He became sin for us. And that demands a response. That demands that we do something with that. If if we know Christ, if we've accepted Him, if we've trusted Him with our lives, that stirs in us a path of obedience and of love and relationship like no other. He gave His life for us. Do you, do you, do you get that? I mean, we get it, but do we, do we really get it? He sacrificed His life in my place. And if you're here this morning and you have never heard the story of the cross and you have never understood what Jesus did. Maybe you just thought, oh, he was a great example, or what a, what a great guy to do this for us. If you have never understood that he was there bearing your sin, then today is the day to give your life to him and to say, I believe in you, Jesus. I trust you with my life. I accept your gift of salvation. But it demands a response. There is no middle ground to the cross. We can't say, oh yeah, it was just sort of this one event that really didn't mean much. You can't. It's one or the other. Either I reject it or I accept it. And today is the day to accept it. I urge you to accept it. Reading on in verse 36. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it in the reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. They're giving him a normal drink, try to prolong his life, a little bit of mocking there. Maybe Elijah will save you. But what worth, what worth Jesus bestows on us to say, I am willing to give my kingly life for you. A king's ransom for really slaves and servants. We live in a culture that's all about finding worth and and helping people find their true potential and doing it. It's all hogwash. 
Because the only place where there's any worth is when Jesus says, you are worth something and I'm willing to give my life for you. It's not from anything I do. It's because of what he's done that says, you are valuable. You are my son. You are my daughter if you will come to me. That's the response to the cross. Sacrifice. He gave his all an unfathomable sacrifice. Substitution, he took our place. And finally, in verses 37 through 39, we see the Savior. We see the Savior. We see the penalty for sin being paid with his own life. The wrath of God satisfied. In verse 37, And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And at that moment, at that moment, sin was paid for. At that moment, those that believe in Him can have hope because they don't have to die. At that moment. And we see that in verse 38 because one of the details Mark chooses to include is the curtain of the temple. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This was a 60 foot high curtain, five inches thick. You don't just walk up and tear it. And it was torn top to bottom. So who's doing the tearing? God Almighty. It's very intentional. And this curtain stood in the temple guarding the Holy of Holies, the center point of the temple. So you have the holy place and you have the Holy of Holies. And this was guarding the Holy of Holies so that people would not be confronted with the presence of God. Because they would die if they went in there. And once a year, a priest on the Day of Atonement could go in and and offer a sacrifice of atonement for the sins of the people. And he was the only one that was allowed to enter the presence of God. And at that moment, when Jesus died, when He saved us, the, the veil was ripped from the top down because now there is access to God. And now we are brought into relationship. And it's no longer through animal sacrifices, but by the very body of Christ standing there as that curtain, we enter into the Holy of Holies and we see God. And God indwells us. And so that's why the third word, Savior, because He satisfied God's wrath with His life, we can stand in the very presence of God. What an incredible opportunity. Many of you remember the pictures on the news in 1989 when the Berlin Wall started to fall. And you saw people climbing on top of the wall and tearing apart pieces of the wall and chipping at it. And as the wall fell, people were streaming across because there was new access. Well, that veil was the wall that separated people from the presence of God. And God Himself tore it Because now sin was paid for. And we're to stream across. And take advantage of this new opportunity to be before the throne of God. To worship. To serve. To love Him. We cannot take that lightly. In Hebrews 10, and I'll end with this. Hebrews 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. This makes 
he's referring to the veil that was torn. Since we have confidence to enter into the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. Since we now can come to the throne of God, and then verse 21, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with the full assurance of faith. Let us hold fast to the faith we profess. Let us encourage one another. Those are the three things he mentions because the veil is broken. Draw close to God. Hold fast to the faith. Draw close to brothers and sisters of Christ. Because he hung on the cross in our place and breathed his last. So many challenges there. And I challenge you this week, are you drawing close to God? Because when we don't come close to God and spend time in His Word and draw close to relationship with Him, we are mocking His death that tore the veil and made it possible. He paid the price of admission. How dare we not go in? But the last thing in the Hebrews passage, I also encourage you, because the author of Hebrews says, since he broke the veil, you should also encourage one another. Be a body. Be brothers and sisters in Christ. And so I I challenge you this week to make sure we are encouraging one another. Because we also mock his sacrifice when we criticize one another. When we tear each other down. And that's a real practical result of the cross that we may think, oh, you're just stretching it, passing it around. No, no, Hebrews says that. God's Word says that. Because if I'm living in light of the cross, I realize I offer nothing to my salvation. I owe my all to God. And my brothers and sisters in Christ owe their all to God. And so we have something in common and we come together and we focus on what He has done. Not on what I wish they would do differently. challenge us, draw near to God, draw near to each other. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. If you are here this morning and you have never given your life to Christ and you have never understood that He hung on that cross to pay for your sins in your place, And the only way that that gift is bestowed on you is if you believe in Him and have faith in Him and trust in Him. This morning, if that is your desire, would you pray after me, just quietly in your seat. Dear Jesus, I recognize that I am a sinner. And it was because of my sin that you gave a sacrifice on the cross. Lord, I believe you took my place. I believe you suffered in my place. That you paid the penalty for sin in my place. And so, Jesus, I believe in you. And I give my life to you. In Jesus' name.
God's word promises that when we come to the cross and believe and trust in the Savior, that he forgives our sin and we will spend eternity with the King. Eternity with the King. How do we know that? Come back next week and the empty tomb will help us know that.